Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a lot to talk about today, and so I want to get right to uh, the panel, introduce them, and start our conversation. Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me, as he is on every Thursday. Kevin, glad to have you with us. Um, So thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Bill, and uh, got to meet two panelists I've never been on with before, so I'm really excited about that. Plus, the real bonus, Andre Gillespie, my personal favorite panelist on this show. <laughs> uh, well, why don't we get right to Professor Andre Gillespie, who uh, all of you out there, I think, know is a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnston Institute for the study of race and difference at Emory. Hi, Andre. Thanks for being here. Hi, how are you? Thank you, Kevin, for that. That, that warms my heart. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're starting off with a love fest on the show today. We're also joined uh, again, and I'm really glad uh, you're back, Tanya Washington, professor of law at Georgia State University. We you know, we've really just gotten to know you on this show, and the last time you were on, we said we must have her back soon. So welcome, Tanya. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, and it's nice to meet everybody. <laughs> Rafael Alvaria is with us as well. Back when uh, we first had you on the show, uh, Rafael, you were a really outstanding reporter at Univision. You've moved on. You're now a fact checker at Fact Chicago. Um, and uh, at some point in the show today, you're going to share with us the, uh, the results of a f- your first fact check on the election or on an aspect of the election in Georgia, right? Yes, Bill, I've had, you know, always have uh, Georgia stories uh, on my mind. But uh, for the first time, you know, I talked to my editors like, let's do something that's Georgia related. They said yes, so I'm pretty excited to, you know, to come back to where, where I am and do some reporting that feels like, We'll talk about that in a little while. But, Kevin, let's start with a story that popped up on the homepage of the AJC website uh, about an hour before we went on the air. And it's a significant story. Um, The headline is Executives Warn Abortion Law is Hurting Georgia Companies. And the story goes on to say that um, some three, four dozen, about 60 uh, Georgia executives, a bipartisan group, had released a letter in which they now say in unequivocal terms that um, they are concerned that the, the so-called heartbeat law, which is now in effect in Georgia, is going to dampen their ability to compete for uh, people from uh, uh, in, in, in states that have uh, uh, much more relaxed abortion laws. Uh, they say that it is, um, in many ways, going to uh, also create problems for them in how they try to deal with helping female employees who will not have access 
to abortion uh, uh, here in Georgia. But Kevin, let me let me say this. They say they're a bipartisan group, but I don't think we've had a chance to really sort through the entire list to make sure that's the case, right? Yeah, Bill, I think that it's also, it's important to point that out, and we'll learn more about this letter. And again, people can look at it for themselves at AJC.com. But, but also, um, these are local uh, uh, corporate leaders and small business owners, um, as they're described. But, but it's important to note, we're not talking about the Deltas and the Home Depot, you know, the big, big companies in town. So on one hand, you know, as we know, those companies have really tried to avoid um, wading into politics lately. Uh, but these are these are the small business owners and the people who run those organizations. I would I'd actually probably say medium and small, um, and they are not the kind of outfits that have massive budgets and massive ability to send people out of state to part of their benefit packages and things like that. So it's a real statement of, uh, from people here on the ground in Georgia, what this means to us. Now, whether it'll take root and whether it will make that connection that, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams supporters really want to make, which is to link those two issues, the economy and abortion. That's really what they're trying to do. Uh, Andra, let me just read from uh, the letter. It's, it's written as, quote, an open letter to Georgia voters. And part of it says this, Georgia has the opportunity to stand up for women and protect the right to choose but instead, politicians have pushed an extreme six-week ban on abortion that threatens our economy. Um, as CEOs, we're now forced to grapple with unprecedented decisions about how to help 50% of our workforce, especially when we have locations in multiple states where some of our workforce has rights and some uh, do not. And it goes on from there. And, and in many ways, it certainly reads like a document that um, uh, from people who uh, would be more likely to support Stacey Abrams than Brian Kemp? You know, I, I was looking at the list of, of, of the signatories for it, and I don't know a whole lot about the businesses. Um, Kevin's right. You know, you don't see the big Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 <laughs> companies in there, but this does speak to a concern that these folks are raising um, that I think, you know, is, is up for debate and should be interrogated about whether or not um, uh, 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 our six-week abortion ban actually reduces Georgia's competitive advantage. Um, and so it could uh, provide a competitive disadvantage in terms of recruitment. Um, it could also provide a competitive disadvantage um, in terms of being able to recruit uh, new businesses to the state. So there may be people who may choose to not locate or relocate their businesses here because they view this environment as being hostile towards female employees who may not want to work here or to transfer here. Um, I think, you know, Republicans uh, who support uh, the abortion bill will likely um, uh, dismiss this letter as being written by uh, folks who don't actually have a big stake in the game um, and who aren't, uh, don't get the types of, of tax incentives that get debated about uh, sort of on a personal and very, very parochial level um, within the General Assembly. Um, but. There are, are ways where this has come up. So, you know, I will say that on my own campus, uh, I have faculty members who raise the question, but I think they've been hearing from parents who have been asking the question um, about uh, whether or not abortion services would be available for their daughters if something were to happen and they needed that. Um, I know, I mean, there was a lot else that was wrong with, with this scenario, but when I was actually trying to recruit speakers for my weekly colloquium series at JWJI, I had somebody turning me down 
and then use the abortion law as an excuse uh, to not come to Georgia. It seems somewhat unreasonable in that particular context because I only asked you to come for two days and not to move to Georgia. Uh, but uh, there are consumers and there are prospective employees, particularly millennial and Gen Z employees, for whom this is a big issue, and they may make some decisions about where to live and where to start their careers and even about what industries to be involved in based on whether or not they feel their rights are being restricted. Tanya, Kevin actually, I think, identified something that's significant about this letter in a different way, Um, and that is that it doesn't include uh, the biggest companies in Georgia, the Delta Airlines, the Coca-Cola companies, the Home Depots and the like. And uh, there are some who who support choice, who believe that our biggest corporations have failed to weigh in on a subject that uh, should be, they believe, the choice people of great importance to them. Yeah, I, I think Kevin rightly highlights the, um, the the fact that the letter is written by small businesses and medium-sized businesses, which I think is significant because their vulnerability is different than that of the Fortune 500 co- companies. But also what I think is interesting in the letter to your point and question, Bill, is that they mention other contexts within which those 14, Fortune 500 companies have weighed in with the voting rights bill um, in the context of, of the gun ban and they specifically, or the gun relaxing of gun laws, and they specifically mention cancellation of, of the Midtown concert. We also saw some of these same companies weigh in in the context of the religious liberty law and how that would impact Georgia's economy, as well as the gay marriage law that was in in place in Georgia. And so we do have examples where those companies have stood up and, you know, stood for the workers that will be affected by Georgia legislation. And I don't think it's too late for them to, uh, to do so. This letter is not written by that demographic, but that may be something that happens down the road. Raphael? And uh, yes, and I, as uh, Andra was saying, uh, when we remember that, that, you know, the economic impact and how millennials and Gen Z behaves, and I, when I saw this, I remember also uh, what uh, California governor said to the film industry to not film in, in Georgia because they don't re- respect uh, women's rights. So there might be a a, a competition in big and small companies of, you know, re- recruiting and attracting millennials and people who don't believe that they're, that they're safe and their rights are respected here. Andra, whether or not this letter uh, comes from people who are supporting Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial campaign or not, they, they, we take them at their word. They say they're a bipartisan group. Some are Republicans, some Democrats. They don't share the same ideologies, they say, in the letter. Nevertheless, uh, let me throw something out at you that you may not have had a chance to absorb yet, but the New York Times this morning uh, ran a piece by Maya King uh, who uh, reports out of the South, the Southeastern Bureau, saying that there are increasingly Democrats who are concerned that Stacey Abrams is having trouble uh, really mobilizing her base of support. We know she's been underperforming with uh, black voters, for instance. Uh, but one of the points that, that the article makes is that uh, uh, as they continue in the polling to be a bit behind Brian Kemp, they're looking increasingly 
to focus on abortion as a key issue to mobilize voters. Andra? Um, you know, Democrats, um, probably from a numerical standpoint, we don't have party registration in the state, but it's probably still safe to assume that Democrats are at a, a slight numerical disadvantage still in the state, even as the state has become increasingly more um, competitive. And so in order for Democrats to win, they can't have a lower than average turnout because they're already at that numerical disadvantage. And so um, the Democrats are going to have to get every possible Democratic vote out um, and then hope that the Republican get out the vote machine falters somehow. Um, you know, in 2021, during the Senate runoff, it was Donald Trump telling people not to show up to vote. Um, sometimes it could be like, you know, who's doing better on knocking on doors and, 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 and getting uh, and, and making the phone calls that are needed to get people out to vote. So they're using abortion as an issue uh, to tap into the anger that can be harnessed to be to mobilize Democratic voters to show up to vote. Um, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that there are differences between the 2018 cycle and the 2022 cycle. So in 2018, Democrats were running as the opposition party to a very unpopular incumbent president um, whose party also controlled both chambers. Um, so the wind was at their backs in the ways that it's not. Um, also, this isn't an open seat contest. And so, yeah, um, you know, Stacey Abrams is the challenger in more ways than one in this uh, particular context. And, and so I think people have to wrap their heads around the fact that the dynamics of, of this election cycle are different than they were four years ago. Um, and then you just have to put your faith uh, in the message and in your get out the vote strategy to do that. But, uh, but, but bringing up abortion, right, because it, it, it's been able to be successfully harnessed for mobilization purposes in other places is a strategy that like Democrats across the country are using. And so it's not surprising that Abrams is using it here. Kevin? Well, I think I'm just right about the abortion thing uh, and the issue. Um, you know, we have these elections. Um, if you really go back to uh, when Donald Trump got elected, there was this sort of underground, let's just call it anger or unhappiness with government where people wanted, you know, ended up wanting to elect someone who would kind of burn it down, break it up, you know, uh, 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 drain the swamp, all the things we heard. And the, that that sentiment, while it was showing in polls, it sure didn't show that Trump uh, it was strong enough that Trump would win. And I do think that's the question on uh, about abortion as an issue in this election, which is how strongly do people feel and how many of them are there? Um, when you look at the traditions in the state, the standard way of looking at elections, the electorate, the polling. Is there a large group of people out there who, when they finally get in that in that uh, voting booth or, or go to press a button, is that the issue that they are most troubled by? And are they going to be mobilized by it? And will we be sort of surprised by that a little bit? Because I don't think a lot of people, particularly on the Republican side, who may have strong feelings about abortion rights or what the Supreme Court has done are going to be out there talking about it a lot. But when they get in that voting booth, will they express themselves that way? I think is the question of this election. Well, uh, we do, Tanya, have some indications in other states, obviously. We, we've all talked about what happened in Kansas where abortion was on the ballot, uh, uh, you, know, you know, an effort to, uh, uh, to continue to uh, make abortion uh, illegal uh, uh, in, in most ways in Kansas. And voters there said, no, we want the right to choice. 
by an overwhelming majority. We had a the congressional race in New York's 19th district where uh, Pat Ryan won largely because he supported abortion rights in what was a very purple district, but he won by a significant margin. So we are we already know we're seeing early signs that abortion can be a mobilizing factor. Absolutely. And in ways that we may not, to um, Kevin's point, be able to predict um, now, uh, I think we need to remember that there are women in the Republican Party as well. And voters evolve. So some of those women voters in the Republican Party in their 20s were kind of, you know, the hipsters. And they may have taken advantage of laws that allowed um, women to exercise agency with respect to their reproductive health. They may not talk about it publicly, but when they go in that booth and they close the curtain and they vote, they may vote for the same so that their children have the same, their daughters have the same freedom that they exercised, even if they never told anyone about the experience. And so for that reason, it is going to be difficult to predict who from the Republican Party would be voting for that continued right um, and, and would not disclose that in advance of, of exercising the franchise. You know, I, I think that I think the way that we think about this issue sometimes gets a little bit distorted in the polls. I mean, we've seen the survey data that suggests that when people are asked to identify their top issues, that abortion isn't sort of top, top, top. Things like uh, you know the economy and inflation, and even concerns about democracy tend to get more support as being the top issue. I think the, the, the better question and perhaps the better predictor of, of, of whether or not somebody's going to vote Democratic or Republican in this cycle may be a question about um, would you not vote for a candidate who opposes abortion rights? So it's a question of like all else being equal, is this a deal breaker for a candidate? And that may be the place where Democrats will try to make hay. Based on data uh, that came on the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision, um, they, uh, the number of uh, Republicans who said that abuse on abortion were a deal breaker for me increased only slightly, but for Democrats, it doubled. And so I think that's what Democrats are banking on, is that there are people who will not consider um, a pro-life candidate in light of the Dobbs decision. And part of the reason why isn't because of necessarily people's prior experience with abortion. They're very prominent um, um, pro-life activists who are actually very open about the fact that they had abortions and they actually regret those decisions. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's the murkiness of, of all or nothing, that everything in some states is actually being prohibited and that this is affecting people being able to get miscarriage care for pregnancies they wanted to carry to term um, and, you know, IVF, um, and that, 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 you know, they're hearing horror stories about people who clearly have uh, fetuses that have genetic abnormalities that aren't being allowed to terminate pregnancies. And just it's this the murkiness and the hard line on the extreme that I think is, is actually giving a lot of people pause who might otherwise consider themselves pro-life. And it's a question of do you want to give these legislatures the decision uh, making capacity to make decisions over, uh, over women's bodies about things that they seem to either not care about or not know a whole lot about. Oh, all right. Th- thank you for that. Um, Rafael, let me bring this into the Hispanic community. We know that in 2020, um, the uh, Georgia Hispanic community, unlike some other states with large Hispanic populations, uh, voted 
overwhelmingly for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Now, they only represented about 4% of the total vote, but given that Trump lost by 12,000 votes, that was significant. So now the question becomes how abortion plays among Latino and Hispanic uh, voters. It's a little bit more complicated in that community, perhaps, than it is in other demographics. Yes? That's right, Bill. And, um, you know, I think uh, the last time I was on the show, we talked about um, how some uh, in the Republican Party have been uh, trying to attract the Latino vote uh, using the, tra- the, the religion and tradition as the way to get them to vote for Democrats, for, for Republicans. But uh, I've seen in this, the latest Unidos U.S. Um, poll and abortion, even though it's not on the top of the list, and like Andra says, there there's inflation, jobs, crimes in the top of the list here in Georgia. Abortion has moved up uh, compared to different years mm. in in one of the issues that worry uh, the Hispanic community. And about 70 percent say that there should be a legal right to an, an abortion. So that's an interesting number that probably, you know, the, the Abrams campaign is taking a look at because even though it's not the top, but it's moving up compared to uh, polls in years prior. So that's an interesting movement there. Well, it's also interesting, given the predominance of, of the, uh, the Catholic Church in uh, Latino and Hispanic uh, communities, that that larger percentage says, uh, yes, we know the church's position on abortion, but we believe that choice is, is, is crucial. Yeah? Yes, and it, it shows that, you know, the, the, even though we, some, some of us have uh, come from countries where abortion is completely uh, ban. There's also been a movement in Latin America uh, in general, as, as we talked about before, that in Mexico, some parts in uh, Colombia, and, and we've seen in other regions where even though the Catholic Church is, is, is very powerful, uh, society still has been able to move from some of the do- doctrine and, uh, and trying to separate church from state when it comes to that. All right, let's do this. Um, let's get the first break of the show. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm very sorry. Out of the way. We'll come back in a minute. I want to talk about just how ugly the race between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock has turned, plus a lot more on today's Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Rafael Oliveria. Andra Gillespie, Tanya Washington, Kevin Riley on today's Political Rewind. Well, Kevin, I, turning on the TV these days can be a dangerous uh, activity because we are suddenly confronted with a couple of the ugliest commercials that we have seen in any political race in, in Georgia, I think, in a very long time. Both of them have to do with spousal 
abuse in the Senate, among the Senate candidates. And if I can, Kevin, before I ask you to comment on it, let me first play the ad that started this. It's not surprising, really, that a PAC that uh, supports Raphael Warnock would, in fact, want to call to voters' attentions all of the allegations about which which Walker has admitted to, in which he threatened an ex-wife and other activities uh, that um, are, are very troubling to many people. Let's listen to the audio of the commercial that the Warnock people released. Herschel Walker has repeatedly threatened to kill his ex-wife. He held a razor to her throat and threatened to kill her. He's accused of choking her until she passed out. He threatened a shootout with police outside her home. And uh, I put a gun to her head. It's the first time he held the gun to my head. He held the gun to my temple and said he was going to blow my brains out. Kevin, that's a hard-hitting commercial made even more, uh, I think, dramatic because they do a reenactment uh, with actors uh, showing Walker uh, uh, threatening his ex-wife. It, it really was kind of stunning, uh, and I think uh, uh, many people believe it, it's going to have some powerful impact on the election. Yeah, Bill, let me preface what I'm going to say with a couple of things. You know, first of all, we're talking politics on the show and its implications and, and the horse race and all that. I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, represents two terribly serious issues in our society. Uh, obviously, physical abuse of a spouse and mental health. Um, so, uh, you know, this overall effort by Democrats to cast Herschel Walker as not capable or qualified or ultimately a good representation of Georgians in the Senate is what they're trying to do. They want people to feel like this is the wrong guy to send to the Senate, no matter how you feel about the balance of power. Um, I do think that particular commercial uh, uh, there's a couple things about it that are different than some of the other problems that Herschel's had in the campaign. The first is that all of this stuff he had put out there previous to the campaign, in other words, this is not uh, new information as such. He put it out there before. And I also think he has found a way at times to sort of pivot and talk about his struggles with mental health and sort of try to neutralize it that way. So I don't know how it will work, but it it sure is hard to watch. And we, of course, are deeply familiar with the, the nuances and developments in this campaign. So, but I just don't, it's hard for me to assess, like if you're an average person sitting there watching TV in the evening, how does that affect you? It, it It's very disturbing. Well, I want to get to that larger uh, question in just a moment. Before we do, Tanya, uh, clearly the Walker campaign believed that this could have enormous impact because they shortly after the Warnock spot dropped, put out their own ad uh, reminding voters of the fact that Raphael Warnock, who is now divorced from his ex-wife, had a somewhat uh, troubled relationship with her um, she accused him of a confrontation in which he backed the car out of their garage, which ran over her toe when he did that. Police investigated, said there was no sign that really happened at all. But there's no question they've got a contentious, uh, 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 had a contentious divorce and continuing issues. And here's how the Walker campaign took uh, that and ran with it. 
Raphael Warnock. We see him on TV, but what is he really hiding? Here's what his ex-wife had to say. I've tried to keep the way that he acts under wraps for a long time. During their divorce two years ago, police were called when Warnock hit his wife with his car after an argument. Earlier this year, he was accused of neglecting his small children and failing to pay court-mandated childcare costs. That's a, just a portion of the ad. It's a long ad. It's, a, it's almost 40 seconds long, which is a little surprising uh, these days. So, um, Tanya, weigh in on this whole issue, how they're both handling it, and I'll ask everybody else to do the same. So I teach family law, and so when we talk about um, divorce and the economic consequences of divorce, there's always a difference of opinion between spouses as to how much is appropriate um, to care for uh, children, when shared custody is, is, is at issue, as is the case here, there are also disagreements about parenting time and what's the appropriate amount of time and who should be with the child during Thanksgiving break and who should be with the child during spring break. Those are different issues than candidate Walker admitting to putting a gun to his wife's head, right? I think both speak to character. But one is in the context of a legitimate disagreement about what's in the best interest of a child, what a child needs to be cared for. My understanding is that there was a request made to increase child support, and there was a um, a corresponding uh, argument made by uh, by candidate Warnock that Senator Warnock, that, that that increase was not appropriate. That's a legitimate set of concerns to be litigated uh, in court. There is no justification for placing a gun to someone's head and threatening to pull the trigger. And I think the fact that the ad that speaks to that behavior includes a statement, an admission by Walker that he engaged in that behavior. Andra? There are a couple of things. I think time is an issue. And so I think it's actually significant that in the anti-Warnock ad that they state that this happened a couple of years ago. Um, you know, when I saw first saw the, uh, the, the anti-Walker ad it was put out by Chuck uh, Schumer's past, you know, one of the things I noticed that I think is a double-edged sword here is that they'll tell you that this came from CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network. So it's from the 700 Club. And so if you know anything about the 700 Club, um, they always show reenactments when they have people giving their testimonials. And so, uh, you know, it's not a testimonial where it ends on the, he puts the gun to his head. There, there's the redemption part of it. And so anybody who would have seen that story or heard about it, and I just checked to confirm, that story first aired on CNN, on CBN in 2009. People are like, he's really far removed. And then there's the story of redemption. I think for a lot of people who are asking questions about Walker, they actually have questions about whether or not he actually got the right type of treatment to say that his dissociative identity disorder is really under control. And that's not really coming out here, but you see the sort of like very sort of stark in your face with his, his, his ex-wife, uh, Cindy Grossman, saying he's putting a, a gun to my head, right? And then it's not talking about the fact that there was another girlfriend who has since passed away who's also made claims about him, but she's actually been dead for a few years. So, you know, the Walker campaign is going to say that's ancient history. That happened a long time ago. And I think the voters have to decide whether or not they actually do think that it's that long ago. Um, I'm not surprised that they would bring up uh, the fight between Raphael Warnock and his ex-wife, um, Ule Ndoye, 
but because um, they were on Fox News during the 2020 cycle where they actually showed the long-form video of the fight that's going out there. You know, I think what's, you know, uh, perhaps disingenuous of it is that it doesn't tell you sort of what the final police report says about, you know, perhaps there being no indication, you know, at all that uh, that there was injury um, uh, uh, to Ms. Ndoye's foot. And I'm not one to sit and weigh in on this. But then there's also sort of the larger issue of the current custody battle. And I think it's important to know um, that uh, Senator Warnock's ex-wife is a graduate student in history. So when thinking about sort of U.S. senator versus graduate student, she definitely is in a more, you know, economically precarious situation. And, 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 and what that dispute is, she's had to pay for additional health care to allow her to kind of continue her training. And she wants her ex-husband, who's clearly in a different situation where he has to work out of town for half the week to kind of contribute more because she's actually having to bear more of the child care load at this point. Without weighing in on it, I think there is a question of is this a false equivalency and is this being spun and, and, and are these allegations being spun in ways that the candidates are not going to be able to get out of? I think for their hardcore supporters, this isn't an issue. Just a question of how this is going to resonate with that small sliver of voters who haven't made up their mind yet. Oh, Raphael, I, I think that's completely correct. I mean, this may be a false equivalency, but it is Walker's way of trying to neutralize the very hard-hitting Warnock spot. And uh, you have to wonder how women voters will be moved either way by one or the other of these spots. And, of course, we know that women voters may be very important to who wins that race uh, in November. Yes, and... The, one of the interesting statistics, when I was uh, back in Univision, uh, I did a couple of stories about uh, the domestic violence also against the Latina women. And, and even though we have the, the stats that says one in four women will experience domestic violence during their life, lifetime, when it comes to the Latina community, it jumps to one in, in three. And, you know, there's more fear because women are afraid of getting de- de- deported if they tell on their husband. So there is a lot more uh, history as well with the, with the Latino community. But I got to say, it's very interesting as uh, someone who, who who didn't grow up here in the U.S., these, uh, how these ads work and the, the, the music they put and the dark money groups, how they buy all these ads. And when you see all this movement and, 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 and music that makes you feel scared while they use a couple of sound bites out of context to try to sway your vote, that, that, that's something that, um, even though our, our, our politics is also there, but that's something that's very new to me. It's very interesting how, how it, it works and, you know, and it's hard sometimes to trace who actually paid for this. So you will think it's, uh, you know, Warnock himself who paid for it. But then you realize, no, it's another group that is linked to, to uh, Senator Schumer. So finding the way who paid for what and who's doing what is very interesting during these times. You know, it's always interesting, Rafael, to hear you, uh, a, a, a man who grew up in Venezuela, talk about what you've learned in watching American elections in the years <laughs> that you've been here. Kevin, put a finishing note to uh, this part of the conversation, and then let's move on. Look, I think as a member of the media, we have to pay. T- I have to pay attention to something, as you do, Bill, that I, Tanya sent. These are not, despite, you know, two commercials we're talking about, two candidates, these are not equivalent situations. It is very different to, you know, for your uh, to have an argument uh, with your wife in your driveway and 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 what happened there, and to to have hold a gun 
to your wife's hat. Those are two very different things. And I do think it's important to remember that. And for voters to make their assessment of this information based on what is actually true, what actually happened, when it happened, as Andre points out. Um, but I do think we shouldn't be careless about these are not like similar things, not even close. All right. Um, thank you for that. I, these ads are going to run for a while, and I suspect we'll be maybe talking about them again um, as we move forward <clears throat> in the election cycle. Um, Raphael, let me let me turn to you uh, for a couple of minutes um, on, on another subject that I, that I want to explore. Um, Stanley Dunlap, who uh, writes for Georgia Recorder, uh, published a piece uh, the other day in which he talked about the fact that Hispanic voters, as we talked about earlier, um, were very, very engaged in the 2020 election and in big numbers turned out to support Joe Biden over uh, Donald Trump. Um, but the point of the Dunlap piece is that, that many members of the Hispanic community who he talked to and heard from uh, feel that, uh, like a lot of communities, they're uh, being sought after for their votes, but their issues are not being paid attention to. Um, we could say the same thing, I think, about uh, the way the black community often feels about elected leaders. But talk to us about it from a Hispanic perspective. Well, Bill, there were uh, many times where I've uh, interviewed, especially groups uh, within immigrant, the immigrant activism world, um, how they say they, uh, you know, came out with uh, Latinos for uh, Warnock or Latinos for Biden here in Georgia. And then uh, there were things that hadn't, has, they haven't happened in the speed that they believe it should have happened. Like, uh, you know, they were asking for uh, more closures of ISIS jails here in Georgia, and that hasn't happened yet. They had uh, President Biden say that he, he was in, in favor of private prisons but that didn't apply uh, to those jails owned by private companies who sh who own stocks in, in in Wall Street who run the the, the prisons here uh, the jail uh, the ICE immigration center here in Georgia. So they well, there there sometimes there are many times where they feel like uh, okay you used me to get your vote but now uh, I don't feel like you're giving me anything in, re in, in return. That's something that, and it comes with a, a, a cynicism many times how they feel, and they sometimes feel that the Democrats take them for, for granted because on the, on the other side, there's a group who has, you know, engaged in anti-immigrant rhetoric many times and whose lead, leader himself is one of the most known anti-immigrant ones. But, um, but, but this same poll that we, we talked about, um, Bill, the UNIOS US, uh, from my perspective, it showed a, a much more favorable uh, outlook for Democrats in Georgia than I expected. Uh, the Democrats felt like more than uh, Latinos who were polled showed more than 60, 65% uh, favorability many times to, to Democrats and Democrats' policies compared to Republicans. Um, so uh, I believe if, you know, if, if there's a, a chance, uh, considering we have almost 400,000, 385,000 uh, registered voters here, Latinos, and 66% are saying that they're willing to vote in November, 
So that's an interesting number that even though they still feel like sometimes that they use them and not taken into consideration after, afterwards, they still agree with most of the ideas from the Democratic Party, most of them. Andro, before we get to a break, uh, what's interesting about what Rafael just said about Georgia Latinos uh, uh, preferring Democrats this election cycle is we have not seen the same thing necessarily in, in Hispanic communities and other states where there is a growing support for Republican candidates. I think I'm correct in saying that. And I, I wonder how we assess the difference between what's happening in Georgia and, say, in a state uh, where there's Latino communities moving toward the Republican Party. Well, I, I think we make a mistake in assuming that when we talk about communities of color being democratic, that they're all as democratic as African-Americans. So African-Americans are about 90 percent democratic in their voting behavior. For Asian-American and Latino voters, that number um, usually hovers you know, between 60 and 75 percent if we look at sort of what the presidential vote has looked like over, uh, over cycles in the last 20 years. So, um, you know, as my colleague Bernard Fraga would say, like, we just forget that, like, 30 percent of Latinos are Republican. Um, and, and we tend to get surprised when the numbers look like that somewhere in that vicinity. There are variations uh, based on kind of uh, sub-ethnic grouping. So, uh, you know, for historic reasons, uh, Latinos who fled communist regimes uh, tend to be more likely, particularly Cuba or Venezuela, are more likely to be uh, Republican um, because of uh, the Republicans being perceived as being the, the, a, a party with a, with a stronger line um, against communists during the Cold War. Um, we also have to sort of um, account for uh, religiosity, particularly Protestantism. Um, and so uh, uh, Latino evangelical Protestants uh, might be more likely to be uh, Republican um, than their Catholic or non-religious counterparts. Um, also, uh, uh, you know, we also have to, to think about uh, how people um, interpret and um, internalize their notions of, 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 of the American dream. And so if you do it with a bootstrap kind of uh, mentality, um, that actually might be more aligned with uh, stated Republican Party values, the work that, that, that my colleague Bernard is doing. So, um, you know, there are all of these reasons, but I, think, but I think the first thing we need to do is that I think when people assume uh, that because blacks are 90 percent um, democratic and we say people of color tend to trend more democratic, that we're saying that Asian Americans and Latinos are as democratic as blacks, and that's just that's not been the case, um, you know, in this country for the last 50 years. Okay, Andrew Gillespie gets the last word in this segment of the show. we got to take our final break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the federal uh, judge who ruled that a special master has to be appointed in the Mar-a-Lago documents. We'll get to that more after these messages. Tanya Washington, the Department of Justice has until I believe it's midnight tomorrow night to decide whether or not they want to appeal, excuse me, the ruling of Aileen Cannon, the federal judge uh, in Florida, who said that a special master must be appointed to sort through the uh, documents uh, taken from Mar-a-Lago when the uh, FBI went in. Um, And there are two sides to that from uh, uh, folks at Justice some say, let's get the, no, let's get the special master appointed, keep going with this investigation. But others are saying, and this is what I think is really of interest to us, uh, uh, Tanya, uh, no, that Judge Cannon raised some issues that if they're allowed to stand are going to be very troubling. And let's just focus for the, the time that we have on a couple of them. 
she said that one of the things that a special master would look at would be documents that might be protected by attorney-client privilege. That's one matter. But then she said something really significant. She said that the special master should look at documents that might be protected by executive privilege. The courts have already ruled against Donald Trump in his efforts to withhold documents on the basis of executive privilege. The uh, Biden White House has said they will not extend executive privilege uh, to Trump. And this appears to be a situation in which the judiciary branch is stepping into the territory of the executive branch and making a ruling that really they should have no part in being involved with. Um, And that's very troubling to many of the legal scholars who have looked at the way she ruled. Absolutely. So there's there are two questions that are informing or will inform the Department of Justice's determination or decision to appeal this decision. Um, One is whether they believe that the judge's ruling was wrong. And I think for the reasons you identified, um, it is considered unprecedented. There was a 1974 Supreme Court decision on the issue of executive privilege that ruled that Nixon did not have the right to withhold the um, uh, did not have the right to withhold White House tapes in service of that uh, that privilege. She ignored that precedent in favor of an appeals court precedent that offers a different test in a different context. And so there's there's that piece of it where they can establish that it is wrong. But the other thing that will inform the Department of Justice's decision is the timing. How long will it take to appeal this and get a decision from the 11th Circuit? That could take a year or more, right? You've got a briefing schedule, and you've got oral arguments. There's, you know, the 11th Circuit already has a busy docket. And so what you would, in effect, be doing during that year is kind of sitting on an investigation that would be significantly stalled as they move through, um, you know, the procedure of appeal. And so I think those two uh, considerations will influence the decision that the, the Department of Justice makes. Kevin, uh, another aspect of this, uh, Glenn Thrush wrote a piece in today's New York Times, an analysis in which uh, there's a suggestion uh, made that it is conceivable not certain, but conceivable that one of the things that Judge Cannon did was lay the groundwork for evidence seized and Mar-a-Lago search to be thrown out and not allowed as part of any prosecution that DOJ may want to uh, take up against Donald Trump. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's all very confusing. And also, let's remember, the 11th Circuit is based here in Atlanta and is generally considered a very conservative um, court, I think, um, uh, with a majority of Donald Trump uh, appointed uh, judges. Um, you know, my question on, on all of that, right, is is this, and I sure hope Tanya Washington can, can help me understand this, because like you, Bill, I've watched hours of television. I've read reams of stories about this. But I was trying to keep myself from being confused by one simple thing, which was if there is a crime, the crime is that the former president was in possession of documents that belong to the National Archives and basically refused to give them back until the the subpoena and search warrants were issued. 
what those documents were, what they said, whether they were top secret, whether whether they were privileged, matters not. What matters, if he committed a crime, it was that he he possessed and refused to give back the documents. Dr. Washington, I mean, are we have we lost that? Is that am I right about that? And is there any way for justice to look at it that way? You are absolutely right about that. And in a normal case, right, the mere possession of the documents constitutes the violation, right? In a normal case with a regular defendant who is not a political figure and not a former president, that would be sufficient. And they would not have extended the grace that they did to President Trump by inviting him on numerous by issuing numerous invitations for him to turn over these documents that should not have been in his possession, to your point, without regard for their confidentiality status. But this is unprecedented in terms of the accommodations that are being made for someone who is under investigation by the Department of Justice. The delay in issuing the subpoena and actually executing the subpoena, now the appointment of a special master's, which is not something that happens regularly in these kinds of criminal investigations, all shine a light on the fact that Lady Justice is not blind. It very much depends on who you are and how many resources you have and the political consequences of moving against this particular um, target of the investigation. We're running short on time, but Andra, one other aspect of this is that in her ruling, uh, Judge Cannon said that uh, she was concerned that uh, some of these documents may paint uh, Donald Trump in an unfavorable light and do damage to his reputation, which strikes me as having absolutely nothing to do with the judicial question at hand. Yeah, I mean, it was like she was trying to create a special category that said that because this was a president of the United States, that there was a different track of justice for him. And I think that that's the part that's particularly galling about this entire situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody who, you know, gets sued or gets brought up on criminal charges is viewed in a bad light. Right. And they have the procedural sort of justice to allow them to be presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. My question for Tanya is, is there any way to, one, expedite this, given the seriousness of the question? And can you get through the investigatory part of it, even with a special master, and still appeal this question of executive privilege at the same time we, to answer that? Uh, we are really running out of time. What's, what's your quick answer to that, Tanya? The quick answer is, yes, it is possible. No, it is not probable. Okay. Um, Raphael, we are not going to get to your fact check today. I apologize for that. But this panel just had so many good things, including you, to say about the issues. Can we do this? Can we defer that? Let us see what you've got. And on a show tomorrow, our panel will look at your Georgia fact check, which deals with Herbert, I mean, with Herschel Walker's uh, statement about too many trees. Have I got that right, Raphael? Yes, we're going to take a look. Do we have enough trees, as Herschel Walker said? And the answer, according to experts, is interesting. It seems like, you know, there are some areas in our metro Atlanta area that, no, we don't. All right, we're going to talk about that with the panel on tomorrow's show. Thank you for allowing us to defer that, uh, Raphael. Thank you, Raphael Olivaria, for being with us. Tanya Washington, Andre Gillespie, Kevin Riley, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being with us. Back again tomorrow with a new show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care.
and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.